Father, we thank you for your goodness and your grace in our lives. Lord, you are God, you are sovereign over all. You're the one who flung galaxies into space that our most far-seeing telescopes know nothing about. That God, you are good to us. You created us in your likeness, in your image. And Lord, you are our sustainer, you are our provider, but you are good to us. When we think about the fact that we have friendship, we have life, we have breath, we have everything that we need comes from your glorious and good hands. And yet every single one of us has sinned and fallen short of, the, of your glory. Lord, all of us are in need, fresh again, of your mercy and grace. We're all in need of repentance. We're all in need of turning away from ourselves and turning to you. Lord, we realize the depths of our rebellion, the depths of our weakness, so much so that we can't even go a day without sinning. And Lord, we need your grace. We need your mercy. Lord, I pray that you would awaken ourselves and awaken our hearts as we walk through the rest of the book of Matthew and consider the death of our Savior, that we would, we would be reminded afresh and anew of what our sin costs the Savior and the depth of our need for forgiveness and grace. And so, Lord, we come to you. We bring all of our failures. We bring all of our rebellion. We bring all of our sin, and we bring them to you, and we confess them to you, and we realize that repentance isn't something that we did once when we got saved, but it's something we began to do and we do every day. And, Lord, we repent of our sins, and we call out to you, and we say, forgive us, Lord, and we thank you that, indeed, you are gracious and loving, and you forgive us when we call upon you by faith. Turning to you, and you lift the burdens of sin. You lift the burden of unrighteousness, and Jesus paid it all for us on the cross. And so, Lord, we receive your mercy. We receive your forgiveness. We thank you, Lord, for your goodness in our lives. And Lord, we lift up our prayer requests to you as well, Lord, of which there are many. Lord, we pray especially today for Renee, and we pray for her healing. And Lord, we thank you that even as these prayers have run across this building today in our hearts and run through our homes and various different ways throughout our minds all week long, you have been faithful to answer. And Lord, we praise you, we worship you, because a week ago, things looked oh so different than they do today. And Lord, it is truly a miracle of your care and your grace and evidence that you hear prayer. And Lord, we thank you. We thank you for this good and gracious providence. And Lord, we continue to pray for her. We pray for her healing. We pray that you give the doctors wisdom. And Lord, we pray for Scott as well. We pray for his comfort. We pray for his strength in these days. The whole family, Lord, may your spirit be upon them. Lord, I pray also for Scott Samuelson, for your spirit to be with him today, to give him encouragement, to give him strength, and for Karen as well. 
And Lord, we pray for others. We know many others who are sick, many others who need a touch from you. And Lord, we also pray for them. And we remember also that in this community, we are surrounded by people that need Jesus. And so, Lord, I pray for our lost family members, our lost neighbors, those without Christ, that you would work savingly. And Lord, we also remember the situation in Ukraine. Lord, we pray that for peace of that nation, peace in our world. We pray for a cessation of hostilities. And Lord, that you would even use this time for your glory and for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of the souls of the nations. Lord, we ask you to work and turn back the tide of war in our time. Lord, I pray that as we come to your word, that you would speak to our hearts today as we seek to hear a word from you. Speak to us from your word, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Matthew chapter 26, beginning in verse 57 and reading through verse 68, Matthew writes, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, these words. Those who had arrested Jesus led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had convened. Peter was following him at a distance right to the high priest's courtyard. He went in and was sitting with the servants to see the outcome. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for false testimony against Jesus so they could put him to death. But they could not find any, even though there were many, even though many false witnesses came forward. Finally, two who came forward stated, This man said, I can destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. The high priest stood up and said to him, Do you have an answer for what these men are testifying against you? But Jesus kept silent. The high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. You have said it, Jesus told him. But I tell you, in the future, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and the coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He has blasphemed. Why do we still need witnesses? See, now you have heard the blasphemy. What is your decision? They answered, He deserves death. And then they spat in his face and beat him. Others slapped him and said, Prophesy to us, Messiah, who was it that hit you? Let's pray again. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your goodness and grace. We thank you that, Jesus, you endured these things for our salvation. And Lord, I pray that you'd speak to us now. Help us to draw closer to Jesus than ever before. Equip us to follow Christ in this world. Lord, we thank you for it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Around the year AD 33, Jesus was on trial. And here in this passage, we read about the trial of Jesus before the Jews. And we'll find out not only in chapter 26, Jesus was on trial before the Jews, but when we get to chapter 27, we'll see that Jesus was also on trial before the Romans. Jesus on trial before the Jew, Jesus on trial before the Gentile, two cultures that greatly struggled to live together, two cultures that greatly struggled to agree on anything at all. And yet here in this passage, they agree on one thing. They agree that Jesus must be destroyed. Now fast forward from the trials of Jesus to from A.D. 33 to the year A.D. 2022. 
And we'll find that, yes, Jesus was on trial in the year AD 33, but Jesus also continues to be on trial today. Jesus continues to be on trial today. He may not be physically standing in the courts of the Sanhedrin, although Jesus does promise that whenever we stand before the magistrates that He will be with us by His Spirit, giving us the words to say at that very moment when we are put on trial. Yes, Jesus is on trial in that way, but there is another way in which Jesus is on trial today. Jesus continues to be on trial today in the court of public opinion. Not only is Jesus on trial in the court of public opinion, but Jesus is on trial in the hearts and minds of many in this generation. Many in this generation who are questioning the claims of Christ, who are considering the claims of Jesus, who are considering the church, who are considering the teachings, and engaging in this trial of Christ. There's a growing phenomenon today that you may have heard of. You may have heard this word before. And this growing phenomenon is called deconstruction. And you may have heard of this word. You may have even heard of people. You may have had family members who have walked through deconstruction. Or maybe you have friends who have walked through deconstruction. Or, or maybe you yourselves, maybe you yourself have been thinking and contemplating even deconstructing your faith. Now, what is deconstruction? What does that word mean? Let me give you a, one definition of deconstruction. Deconstruction, according to one author, is the process of systematically dissecting and often rejecting the beliefs you grew up with. So it's rejecting and dissecting the beliefs you grew up with. He goes on to say, sometimes the Christian will deconstruct all the way to atheism. Some remain there, but others experience a reconstruction. But the type of faith they end up embracing almost never resembles the Christianity they formerly knew. Today, in today's world, we, see, we have seen several high-profile people, several high-profile folks in the media that have deconstructed their faith. One example of this would be Rat and Link. If you are familiar with their YouTube videos, their sometimes comedy videos, that they have publicly, very publicly, deconstructed their faith. Even pastors are not immune to this because there is, a, as there is a pastor who, you may have read his book, I certainly did when I was in college, when I was a teenager. Maybe you've read the book, I Kiss Dating Goodbye. Not only that, his books are also in our church library. His book, Dug Down Deep, we studied that as a church. And his name is Josh Harris. Even pastors today are deconstructing their faith. Now, I don't think this is a new phenomenon in any way. What I think is new about it is not the phenomenon itself of deconstructionism. But what I do think is new about this in today's world is that it is jet-fueled by social media, where we live in a world where it's not a private thing, it's not just a personal thing, but it's something that you can go public with that even those who are around the world, scattered across the globe, can gather together virtually and form this community of questioning this community of deconstructing faith. I think people throughout the ages have walked through seasons of doubt and seasons of struggle when it comes to their beliefs. And over the years, we have referred to it as, as various different things or used various different words in order to refer to this very same phenomenon. In the past, we may have referred to it as falling away. 
Or we, we may have referred to it as apostasy. Or we may have talked about it as questioning or doubting. But in reality, it is all similar things. They are the same thing. And even fa- in, in fact, in the, in the New Testament, we see even those there who questioned and even deconstructed their faith. Think about Demas. Demas is described as one who, in love with this world, Paul says, Demas, in love with this world, has deserted me and has gone to Thessalonica. We think about others in the New Testament that are described in terms that today we would say they are deconstructing their faith. There's Hymenaeus, there's Philetus. There are others in the New Testament that are described as walking through this phenomenon. Now, what are the causes today of deconstruction? Why is a generation so commonly deconstructing their faith? I think there's several reasons, and then certainly every case is unique. So I don't want to say everybody is each of these four things, or even just one of these things, but we know that every individual has a unique story and has a unique background. But if we were to summarize, if we were to categorize, if we were to try to get our hands on why is this happening today, I think there are four causes of deconstruction today, four reasons why more people are deconstructing today than we have seen in the past. One of the reasons why people deconstruct today is toxic church environments. One of the reasons people have deconstructed in recent times is toxic church environments, sadly to say. And that we so often today have a Christianity that proclaims a morality that it doesn't live, or proclaims a gospel, or proclaims a holiness that it doesn't walk out in its life, and the way that we actually do church together. Sometimes it's a morality thing, and and sometimes we have a generation that's walked away because they've seen so much fussing and fighting within the church. And they say, if that's what Christianity produces, I want no part of that. I can see that in the world. And so we see toxic church environments and the reaction of many against that has been to check out on Jesus, has been to walk away from the faith. I think there are other reasons why deconstruction has become common today. I think a second reason, not only is there toxic church environments, but I think secondly, there's just poor teaching. There's poor teaching in the church. When students go off to university from the church and they are first, for the very first time hearing that there is a problem of pain, that there is an issue with God being all-knowing and all-loving and sovereign and good, and yet people walk through suffering and they have never heard that addressed from the pulpit when they never have heard anybody lead studies on this topic or many others what about creationism what about creation versus evolution or or what about the sovereignty of god and they go to university and they hear these things questioned or pointed out for the very first time in their lives or even how does christianity work among the world religions and why are there so many world religions these are critical questions of which there are excellent answers for and yet if we as a church and we as a people don't go deep in our faith and showing what it is and we believe and why it is that we believe we send out a generation that is unprepared to stand firm for their faith So toxic church environment. Secondly, poor teaching in the church. Thirdly, and here's a place where you have to be honest in terms of your deconstruction. Third is sinful desires. 
Sometimes people will deconstruct their faith because of a sinful desire within their heart that they are seeking to excuse or have an excuse for. I want to engage in a particular lifestyle. I want to engage in a particular activity. I know the Bible preaches against that or teaches against that. The quickest way to be able to engage in that sinful activity is to say the Bible is not true. Christianity is not true. So it becomes a sort of a smokescreen for immorality. Fourthly, one of the reasons why I think people deconstruct today is because of the desire for affirmation. The desire for friendship, the desire for community. And if they don't find a deep, lasting friendship in the church, a community in the church, they will go wherever it is that they will find it. And that is why fellowship, community in the church around the gospel is so under attack today because people need fellowship. We need community. We are not meant to be alone. And so they will go out into the world to find community if they cannot find it within the church. And so what I want to do today, thinking about Jesus on trial in a generation, in the world in which we live in, and also thinking about the trial of Jesus here in Matthew chapter 26, what I want to do is I want to walk through the trial of Jesus before the Sanhedrin and show how unbelieving religious people in the Sanhedrin were seeking to deconstruct Jesus. And what we learn from this passage that we can then apply in our context in 2022. And so let's consider together the trials of Jesus. Our passage opens up with Jesus having already been betrayed by Judas and arrested by the mob. They deliver Jesus over to Caiaphas' house where the Sanhedrin had already gathered together to try Jesus' case. And the fact that they're already gathered together tells us this is a setup. This is a total conspiracy among the Jewish people, among the Sanhedrin, among the leaders of that particular day. Now, before we jump into this particular trial, it's important for us to understand about how the trials of Jesus work. Because if you read any one of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you will get a, a snippet, a picture of the trials of Jesus, but any one Gospel doesn't contain the whole of the trials that Jesus underwent before the courts of that particular day. You have to put them together. Each one of the four Gospels has a particular emphasis in a particular part of the trial. But when you put it all together, you will find that Jesus actually went through two main trials. And each of those trials had three parts. So Jesus underwent two main trials. Each of those trials had three main parts. I think we have it here on the screen. There we go, yeah. And so there was the Jewish trial, and then there was the Roman trial, each of them having three parts. So the Jewish trial had the trial before Annas, the trial before Caiaphas, and then the judgment at daybreak. That was all happening at night, and then the judgment at daybreak happened at dawn with Caiaphas. Now here in Matthew, we do not read about the trial before Annas. That is found in the book of John, chapter 18. You can read about it there. It's happening before, actually, these events that we just read about in the Gospel of Matthew. So that is the trial before the Jews. Then Jesus is handed over to the Gentiles, and the trial before Rome also had three parts as well. There was part A of the trial before Pilate, and then Pilate handed him over to Herod. Then Herod hands him back over to Pilate, Pilate part B, where then Jesus is handed over to be crucified. 
And so here in the book of Matthew, we have the trial before Caiaphas, the trial right after Annas. We know that first, after Jesus was arrested from the book of John, John chapter 18, Jesus was delivered to Annas. Annas is the father-in-law of Caiaphas. And you might, well, how in the world could Jesus have three trials all at night? Here is the key. Annas is Caiaphas's father-in-law. Annas is Caiaphas's father-in-law and their neighbors. They share a courtyard. And so when Jesus was delivered to Annas, Annas says, he's guilty, get him over to Caiaphas. Why did he need to go over to Caiaphas? What's going on there? Well, Annas was the high priest previously over the people of Israel. But prior to the time of Jesus's ministry, Annas actually got into a, a got some bad blood between him and the Romans. And the, the Romans deposed Annas as high priest and installed their own high priest, Caiaphas, that was more agreeable to the Roman rule, actually the son-in-law of Annas. They still got along enough to share a courtyard, but the people's hearts were still with Annas as their rightful high priest. And so the people delivered Jesus to Annas first. Annas says he's guilty. Get him over to Caiaphas. That way we can get a verdict against Jesus that Rome will recognize. We can get a verdict against Jesus that will stand before the courts of Rome. This is all a conspiracy that is working out right before our eyes here in Matthew chapter 26. It's not so different from some of the mob mentality that we see in social media and modern culture of today. Now, this entire trial is an absolute sham and is completely illegal, which is stunning when we realize who is leading this trial. It's the chief priests and the teachers of the law. And yet, at the same time, we see violation after violation after violation of not only the Sanhedrin Code, but also the law of the Old Testament, if you were to read the first, four book, first five books of the Bible. We see over and over and over again, this is absolutely an illegal trial. Well, what is so illegal about this trial? Let me give you some irregularities of this trial. Trials involving capital punishment were not to happen during feast days. And yet, this is during the Passover. And they're trying a capital case during the Passover, completely illegal and against the Sanhedrin codes. More than that, the location was illegal. You don't go over to Caiaphas's courtyard and have a trial. You have to have that in the temple courts. The location was illegal. The timing was illegal. You didn't have trials at night. You had trials publicly so that they could be witnessed by the people. Not only that, but it was illegal in representation. Jesus has no defense attorney here in this passage. That was the common practice in that day. You were to have a defense attorney to speak for you. The charge was illegal. Blasphemy was reserved only for those who had misused verbally the name, out loud, the name of the Lord. And Jesus is never accused of that and is never recorded as using the name of the Lord in vain. He would have never done that in violation of the commandments. So we see even the, even the charge is illegal. The procedure is illegal. Witnesses were not supposed to talk to each other. And verdicts in capital cases required two days of waiting in order to issue a verdict, but they issued their verdict within a few hours. This is a total sham, but what it does tell us is that people will go to great lengths to try to discredit and silence Jesus. 
What we learn from the Sanhedrin and can apply directly to today is that people then and now will go to great lengths in order to discredit and silence Jesus. In verses 59 through 60, we see that there are many false witnesses that came forward to testify at Jesus' trial. That's very interesting, isn't it? Even the scribes and the chief priests and the elders are said in this passage to have sought out false witnesses. So they're making compromise at the highest levels of the religious establishment of that particular age. Compromising, why? Because they taught a law that one of the Ten Commandments says in Exodus chapter 20, verse 16, it says, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And so they were acting out the very, they were acting against the very law that they proclaimed. And that is what an unbelieving world finds unbelievable about religion that is only word only and not action, not deed. We can see the application to today. And so there, right there, they are calling these false witnesses, but their stories can't agree. Eventually, they finally get two guys that come together and their stories agree. They get two witnesses that are able to say in verse 61 that they heard Jesus claim that he could destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. Now, that's close to something that Jesus said, but not exactly what Jesus said, and certainly not what he meant. In John chapter 2, verses 19 and 20, it says this, Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days, but what was Jesus really talking about? Was Jesus talking about a building? No. Jesus was talking about his body. He was predicting his death and his resurrection. John chapter 2, verses, if we read on in John 2, verses 21 and 22, Jesus says, uh, he was speaking, or he says, he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now for Caiaphas, this was enough. Jesus said that, they they had the testimony, Jesus said that he is going to tear down the temple and build it up. That would be utter blasphemy, and not only that, that would be leading an insurrection against us and leading an insurrection against Rome. We've got the witnesses, we've got him. We've got Jesus exactly where we want him. Then Caiaphas began to question Jesus directly, also illegal. They began to question Jesus directly. What do you say about this, Jesus? What is your answer to these charges? And what does it say in verse 63? Look at it with me. It says, Jesus kept silent. He said nothing. All four Gospels point this out. That before his accusers, Jesus was silent. Why do all four Gospels point this out? At this moment, Jesus is fulfilling the prophecy of the Old Testament. In Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 7, it says this, He was oppressed, he was afflicted, and yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and a sheep before its shears is silent, so Jesus, or so he opened not his mouth. 
there, Jesus fulfilling Old Testament predictions, Old Testament prophecies in his own actions. And then at that moment, the anger of the chief priest flares up, the high priest flares up, of Caiaphas flares up. He places Jesus under oath and flat asks him, are you the Messiah, the Son of God? Now, friend, that is the central question of the age. In fact, that is the most important question you will ever answer. Because you can ask questions about the church. You can ask questions about hypocrisy. You can ask questions about morality. You can ask questions about all of these things, and they're important questions. We'll talk about them here in a moment. But the most important thing that you need to settle in your soul that will determine eternity is who is Jesus? That's the most important question. Is Jesus the Christ? Is he the Messiah, the Son of God, the Word of God made flesh, who died on the cross for your sins and rose again from the grave? Is he that or is he not? That is the question of our times and eternity. Jesus' answer is crystal clear. He quotes from Psalm 110, and he quotes from Daniel 7, and Jesus says, you have said it, but Jesus fills in the gaps in Caiaphas' understanding. And Jesus, and what is perhaps the most clear statement about Jesus in the book of Matthew, in fact, I think this is the pinnacle statement of the book of Matthew. Jesus says that, I tell you, from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. What is Jesus Jesus doing here? Let's get some help from a commentator named uh, Douglas Sean O'Connell. He says the or O'Donnell. He says the following. He says Jesus is the Christ and the Son of God and the Son of God, who in accordance with Second Samuel seven thirteen builds the temple. Jesus is the king of Psalm 110, verse 1, who sits at God's right hand. Jesus is the suffering servant of Isaiah 50, verse 6, whose face is spout upon. Jesus is the son of man of Daniel 7, 13, who will come on the clouds of heaven. All of these glorious statements of prediction from the Old Testament, all of these hopes from the Old Testament come crashing down right here, fulfilled in the person and life of Jesus Christ. Everything in the Old Testament that we long for is now fulfilled in Jesus. Think about it. The things in the Old Testament we long for, we long for a king. God in the Old Testament promises us that we will have a king, a forever king in the line of David, a king that will rule over the whole world. In the Old Testament, we see that we long for a prophet, one that will be the Word of God, that will preach the Word of God, and that his life will align up with what he's saying. And we long to have a priest that will finally and forever deal with our sin. He promises a Messiah. He promises the suffering servant. He promises the coming of God as the ruling and reigning king. And we realize that these aren't five different pictures of five separate people, but these are one picture of one king, one ruler, one Messiah. Jesus is the fulfillment of it all. He does it all. And that is what Jesus is saying here. 
You've longed for a priest in the Old Testament, but not like any of those guys, Jesus is it. You've longed for a king in the Old Testament, but as you're reading through the Old Testament, yeah, we need a king, but not like any of these guys. Jesus is the fulfillment of your hopes. We need a priest, but not like any of those guys. We need the perfect high priest who delivers once for all this sacrifice. Jesus is all of that and more. He is God, fulfilling all of the hopes and all of the dreams of history. Jesus is all of that. One climactic statement saying Jesus is the fulfiller of all of our hopes and dreams. But Caiaphas couldn't see it. He was blinded to the light that was standing right in front of him. 2 Corinthians 4.4 says this, The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers so that they do not see the light of the gospel of the glory of God in the face of Christ Jesus. The light of the world was standing right in front of Caiaphas. And Caiaphas, rather than falling on his knees and turning away from his sin and trusting in the Lord, ripped his robes and said, I will have none of this and said, you blasphemer, how dare you? He tore his robes and he called for the verdict and they cried out the verdict that they had already decided. Jesus was threatening their religious position and so they cried out, guilty, he must be put to death. And the king of glory became the punching bag of scoffers. The Christ who welcomed children onto his lap and taught The crowd, such that their souls burned within them, was now spat upon as they pronounced him guilty. So how do we apply this passage today? And how do we think about Christ on trial, not only in the first century, but how do we think about Jesus on trial in the year 2022 AD? Let me give you two points of application. Number one is this. For those walking through struggles, doubt, or even deconstruction, let me encourage you to focus your attention on the person and work of Jesus Christ. Focus your attention on the person and work of Jesus Christ. The central question in our lives is who is Jesus? Is he the Messiah, the Son of the living God, or is he not? Is he the savior of the world or is he not? And I want to encourage you to be careful to discern the difference between the person and work of Christ and what people have done in his name. Because there is much in history and there is much today that is done in the name of Jesus that is not of Jesus. Just because somebody says they are of Jesus doesn't mean they are of Jesus. Amen? (laughs) We see that throughout history. You see it on the airwaves today. And you see it throughout the world. Don't let the failures of others who claim a gospel that they do not believe nor live out keep you from knowing the real, true, and living God. One of the causes of doubt and truth in the Savior is that you have been hurt by the church. You have watched as the church has done some things in the name of Christ that are not Christ-like at all. And it's true. It happens, and it has happened. 
There are many who name the name of Christ who do not know Jesus. But isn't that true of every human entity? You can see it even here in this passage. Those who claim to be following Yahweh, those who claim to be following the Old Testament, those who claim to be standing for truth are right there fighting against truth. Even here in this passage. Now I want to encourage you, there is an authentic faith. There is an authentic church. There is not a perfect church. And if you find one, don't join it. <laughs> right? <laughs> it doesn't exist. Because we live between the times and we are still fallen, we're all still in the midst of our own repentance. And we're all still under construction in our own Christ-likeness. Even the guy talking to you today. Or maybe I should say it this way. Especially the guy talking to you today. <sighs> but we're all that way. But here in a moment, we'll talk about how the church needs to own that and be humble about that. Yeah, I, I, I walked through this. I've walked this road. Because I grew up in the days, I grew up in the 80s and the 90s. I went to high school in the 90s. But I grew up in the day when it seemed like every time you turn on the TV, it was scandal after scandal after scandal after scandal of people who preached holiness but didn't live it out. And I walked through a season, even in my own heart and life, where I said, I don't think anybody's real. I don't think anybody walks this. And I was angry about it because some of them I'd actually followed. And some of them I'd actually listened to. I was angry about it. How, is there anything real? I mean, here's what they're telling me. And, it doesn't, and then you see this on TV. I mean, give me a break. And that's how I felt. And at some point I had to put all of that aside and say, let me consider the claims of Jesus. Let me consider the truth of the Bible and the gospel of Christ and let my life be built upon not a human institution or somebody who claims to follow Jesus, who's obviously not following Jesus, but let me build my life and my faith on Christ and His Word. That is where you need to go. Consider the Word of God. Consider the claims of God. Follow Him. Follow Jesus. And let me encourage you to ask questions. I want RBC to be a place where you can ask questions. And you can find somebody who can say, let me come alongside you and let's meet. Let's get together regulates. Let's get together. Let's go grab some coffee. And I may not know the answer. And you may come at me with a question, and I will, if I don't know the answer, I will honestly say to you, I do not know the answer. But there's smart people who write books. <laughs> and let's go find one. And let's read it together and figure it out together. Let's figure this thing out together. And let's walk through this and figure it out and learn in the process. Let's grow to learn more about Jesus in the process. I'm not the only one here who would love to walk with you through these trials through these doubts, through these concerns, through these struggles. I'm a fellow struggler who wants to help you to walk through your struggles as well. Don't think you have to do this alone. You have a church, you have a family that would love to help you to walk through these things. Now I do want to encourage you to discern your heart if you're tempted towards deconstruction, I want to encourage you to discern your heart. And this is going to take some real honesty on your part. 
I want to be honest with you, and I want to ask you to be honest with me. Discern your heart. Does your deconstruction really, is it really about Jesus at all? Or is your deconstruction really a smokescreen to allow you to have an opt-out for a particular sin in your life? Only you can answer that. But you have to discern your own heart and soul. I'm not saying that's true in your life, but I want you to ask yourself the question. So that way you don't check out on Jesus because what you're really wanting to do is something else. Discern your soul to see whether or not you're losing your faith so that you can now do fill in the blank. Or so that you can now have the identity fill in the blank. Or so that you now can whatever that is. Discern your own heart. Examine your heart motives. Is this really about Jesus? Have you considered who he is and what he says? Discern whether or not, examine your own heart and discern whether or not this decision or this pathway is really about the desires of the culture. There is a logical fallacy that we call the bandwagon fallacy. We do it because everybody else is doing it. We do it because I'll get the accolades of the culture. We do it because when you put this on Twitter, you put this on Instagram, you're going to get likes, and you will. And it feels really good. It feels really good when you get likes, and it seems like you have a community around you. But examine your heart. Examine your motives. Watch out for that. Because a bandwagon that you can jump on someday will run you over. Watch out for that. Be careful of a deconstruction that's motivated by the desires of the culture or the desire to belong. To the deconstruction, to those who are tempted with deconstruction, I want to encourage you, don't check out on Jesus without really thinking through who Jesus is, what he said, and why that matters. And know you have a church here that wants to help you to consider Jesus. Secondly, to the church, I want to say this. For the church, how should we respond in an age when Jesus is on trial? We need to teach sound doctrine. Repent of sin. Care for the struggling and press on for Christ. For the church, teach sound doctrine. Repent of sin. Care for the struggling and press on for Christ. We need to teach sound doctrine, to teach the full counsel of God. It's important that we not shy away from the deep questions, that we not shy away from the very things that this generation is asking and make sure that we have answers. And when we don't have answers, we say, I don't know, but there is not a question out there that hasn't been written about somewhere. And people, very smart, people a lot smarter than me, have thought through these things. And let's go research and let's go figure it out together. Let's do the hard work that it takes to build a faith that is based upon the Bible, that's based upon fact, that's based upon the Word of God. And brother and sister, let's teach it. Let's teach it. Let's preach it. Let's study it. Let's read about it. Gone are the days when we can have a faith that is based upon being part of a community that just gets together for a good old time. That is not the kind of faith that will withstand in the kinds of attacks that we are facing today. We must know what we believe. We must know why we believe it. And we got to get in this book and teach it like never before.
In this setting, yes, but in other settings as well. In the small group setting, in the setting of your own living room, reading good books, in the setting of discussing the faith with other people, in the setting of helping people walk through even struggles or doubts in their own life, even over a cup of coffee. Walk steady. Get into the Word. Teach it. Know it. Know what you believe and why you believe it. We need to teach sound doctrine. Secondly, we need to repent of sin. We need to repent of sin. When we as a church or the church at large has walked in sin, we need to be able to say, we, I was wrong. I was wrong. Sometimes that's just what a generation just wants to hear. Do you recognize your continuing and our continuing sin in our lives? When there's sin, I'm talking about biblical sin, when the Bible says, do this and we didn't do it, or don't do this and we did it. We need to be willing to say, I was wrong. That's why I said earlier in my prayer, we didn't repent once as Christians. A Christian isn't somebody who repented once in their lives, like the day they came to know Christ. A Christian is someone who walks in repentance, who recognizes our sin And every time God brings up a sin to our remembrance, a sin in our hearts and lives, we repent of that sin, we own it, we say, yes, I did that, and it was wrong, and I want to go a new direction by the power of God in my life. And that is a life of repentance and grace, demonstrating that to those around us. So teaching sound doctrine, repenting of sin, caring for the struggling. We need to be a people who care for the struggling who care for those who are struggling in their faith. Do you know who we're imaging when we care for the struggling? We're imaging and are walking in the path of the good shepherd. Ezekiel chapter 34, verse 16 says this, predicting Jesus, Jesus is the fulfillment of this, I will seek the lost. I will bring back the straight. I will bind up the injured. And I will strengthen the weak. That should be the heart of the people in the family of God those who have struggled, even those who have struggled publicly, even those who have struggled with their faith in a public way. Do we seek them out? Do we seek to bring them back? Do we seek to bind up the injured? And do we seek to strengthen the weak? That is a heart of a church that will shepherd well a people, the people of God in 2022. It's the ministry of the good shepherd that goes after the one who is strayed away from the 99 to bring them back. Yes, indeed, sometimes there's church discipline involved, but there's church discipline. The aim of it is always restorative, is always bringing people back to fellowship with the body and fellowship with Christ. And that is our heart's desire. That should be our aim as believers. And then finally, we as a church, how do we respond in a day like this? We, when Jesus is on trial, we press on in Christ. We don't give up. We keep going. We keep studying. We keep preaching. We keep after people. And we press on in love to reach out to those who are struggling in this day. We press on for, the, for Christ because Jesus is worthy of the glory of this generation. That's our heart's aim and desire. I want to encourage you, if you know someone who is struggling with 
these very things, who's struggling with doubt, who's struggling with deconstruction, or who's even fallen away, I want to encourage you during our time of response to be praying for them. And we all have family who's done this. We all have friends who've done this. We all know people who've done this. Pray for them. That, as Spurgeon called him, the Holy Spirit, the hound of heaven, (laughs) would go after them and would convince their hearts and draw them back to Christ. God, work in their lives. Work in a way I don't even know. I don't even have the words to say. Give me the words. Help me. Help me to love them well. Maybe even you are, cons- are struggling with that. I want you to pray, Lord, help me. Help me. I need your help. And ask God to help you walk through this struggle in your life. If there's repentance, I encourage you to respond to today's message by calling, on to the Lord, calling to the Lord and saying, Lord, I recognize sin in my life. I want to turn away from it. I want to follow you. I want to trust in you. Or maybe you need to trust in Christ as Savior. Whatever you need, I'll be right here to pray with you. The altar will be open. You can come here and pray for your family, for your friends. However you need to respond, you respond as we sing. Let's spend a moment of silence, and then I'll pray, and then let's respond together.